You're listening to the Spirit Hunters on the Greenlit Podcast Network. Greetings. Hello and welcome to Season 2, Episode 24 of the Spirit Hunters. This is Sarah. And Hannah. Joe. And Patrick. And last time, Gon got benched from Nen training. Kurapika faced the harsh realities of job hunting in this economy. And Kilua went to watch Hisoka's fight with Castro alone. Uh, today we'll see who will win in the battle of clones versus clowns. You better get ready. Alright, today's episode is episode 32, or as Netflix likes to call it, season 2, episode 6, a surprise win, or... Dokori na Shiori. Hopefully that's right. Uh, originally released in Japan on May 20th, 2012. Aired on Toonami in the US on December 17th, 2016. The equivalent manga chapters are chapters 54 and 55, which were released in Japan on December 22nd, 1999. The equivalent 99 episode, 1999 episodes are 41 and 42, which were released in Japan on September 30th, 2000. So, we start off with, like, Hisoka just losing his arm. So, naturally, he decides to play a creepy card trick. Kind of like what we talked about earlier with, you know, pickup artists. He's doing that right now. Um, there's some really complicated mash shit. Um, so, basically, X plus 4 times 2 minus 6 divided by 2 minus X equals 69. And that is not the case. Equals <laughs> <It was> one. <laughs> I was just reading that. Originally, I put in the notes that math equation equals taking a card out of your arm stump. <laughs> that also is that that is also what it is. Yeah. So sixty nine equals taking a card out of your arm stump equals one. There okay, we've huh? just broken math. I hope you know that. <laughs> um, the Castros are pissed off. One um, charges to- charges forward to attack and severs Hisoka's left arm. Um, Is it funny that I just imagine it being like Fidel Castro cloning himself and fighting Hisoka? <laughs> I mean, that's what the Cuban Missile Crisis was about, right? <laughs> yeah, of course. Uh, Hisoka was really JFK. Yep, this is true, um, true history right here. Um, Hashtag so, true history moments. Yeah. So um, the, the Castros are shocked to see that Hisoka's right arm is now reattached. How? We don't know. Um, magic. Magic. Snort, snort. Pick up Artist 101. Pick up Artist 101. Reattach your hands. Yeah, and here's Hisoka's number one nag um, comment. I predict that you're going to dance yourself to death. D- please use us as in the clubs. I'm sure you'll get a lot of women. Fla- Let's dance ourselves to death, you. baby. Do do do. <laughs> dance yourself to death. My new single. <laughs> <Hey>. <laughs> but um, yeah, basically, Hisoka manages to pick out the real Castro from the double and exposes Castro's method. Basically, he says, um. Like, yeah, you know, you have an image in your mind, but, and like, blah, blah, and the thing is 
that even if you recreate something exactly, there's some things that can't be replicated, including Grime. So the duplicate or the double, he's just way too pristine. And you kind of notice that the real Castro's shirt is like all dirty and stuff while the uh, the doubles completely looks like he really looks nice pristine. and clean. Yeah. Nice and squeaky clean. Simple, Simple and, and clean. clean. Damn it. It's the way that you're making me feel tonight. <laughs> you're making me. Okay. Yeah, let's make an AMV of this fight to that song. Yeah, man, it's really making it's really hard to let let it go though. Yeah. Um, yeah. So um, the next thing that happens that's so wild is that Hisoka punches the double with his flying severed left arm, and um, basically after that he flings a bunch of his killer cards in the real Castro's direction. Jeez, um, he pulled a Joseph. <laughs> yeah. Um, Castro is freaking out. He's like, he's thinking I need to create a double to use a meat as a meat shield, but he simply can't. He's t- like, he's flustered like crazy. Um, Hisoka's like then nagging him some more, saying like, ho 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 ho, you didn't learn enough. You're squandering on your m- memory capacity, and it's gonna lead to your death, basically. Um, Speaking of this, I really like this. Because you know that fucking stupid math equation he did earlier? Yeah. (laughs) I think that's kind of not only supposed to be like, you know, distraction, because like you're going to start thinking about it and that's a problem. I also think that he's trying. I also think there's a metaphor there. Because Mm -hmm. if you look at that math equation, it looks like, you know, a system of equations and therefore it's going to be really hard to figure out like what it is. It's like, no, there's actually only one answer to this. And like, regardless of, so the X is specified, like basically you're able to specify the X. Uh, He basically gives you the request, specify the X and like, let's see what happens with this equation. Turns out no matter what X you specify, the answer will always be one. And I feel this is kind of like how Hisoka fights that like you can do whatever you want, but he's actually in control. He's going to be the one. Wow. Wow. The, it's some goofy shit. The I true pickup artist. <laughs> yeah. He's like, oh, you thought you had me, but no. I had You're you. the one for me. Oh, my God. <laughs> God damn it. <laughs> um, basically, um, yeah, so, like, um, you, we see Kasha skewered by a bunch of cards, and then you see Gon wakes up from his trance. Um, in the fight ends. So, um, yeah. And then, um, we go and we go to cut to another scene and there's like a pink haired lady named Mashi. She's chilling and she appears and, um, we're back. Then go cut to Hisoka's hotel room and she's there and she basically is hired by him to help repair his arms. And it's a really cool sequence where... She uses her nun ability um, to sew his arms back to his other arm using needles and threads. Um, Hisoka jokes around saying that her bedside manners could be better, and she's like, shut up. (laughs) Um, (laughs) And yeah, and so afterwards, she says Hisoka will be um, able to do the rest himself thanks to his bungee gum and texture surprise. Um, you, you guys are going to get really tired of hearing the phrase bungee gum from this point on. 
Yeah, I'm already a little tired of it. But I'll explain it anyway. So Bungie Gum basically uses Nen to, like, um, he uses, Bungie Gum basically means using Nen to attach, um, specifically a scarf to skin, um, like, to the, basically he named it after his favorite chewing gum, and then Uh, text- Mm-hmm. Bungee gum can actually be used generally like that. It's basically like a incredibly powerful adhesive and uh, deflector. Right. And then Texture Surprise uses Aura to create the impression, um, in this case, the, the impression of layer of skin. And um, Hisoka based that name off of gag stickers from a popular candy. Um, yeah. So, um, this guy's a weirdo. Yeah. So the pink Machi and Hisoka talk about the battle. Um, basically, she says, he, like, she points out that the card trick was a misdirection, um, that his, Hisoka's right arm and his scarf were attached um, to the roof and the ground, respectively, um, and, like, using the bungee gob. And the ore of each thing was then uh, connected to his right arm stump, and that the... Um, or of the th- 13 cards that he threw up in the air and landed on the ground, they were connected to his left hand using bungee gum. And then afterwards, he stuck the or of the 13 cards to this Castro's body. Hopefully I'm explaining that correctly. That's how I interpreted it. Um, and that the afterwards when, um, yeah, like, Afterwards, when his left arm got cut off, the aura of the left, the severed left arm was then attached to Castro's chin, or the double's chin, and that's why it was able to punch him in the air. And then, um, yeah. I think that one might be Castro's chin, because Castro's, like, uh, really, like, out of it by the time that he gets, like, after he gets hit, he's out of it and can't generate the double again. Right, right. Um, and then, yeah, and Machi points out that anyone concentrated with Ren could probably detect this. Um, that's why Hisoka used the card trick as a distraction in the first place. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think it's a really cool, masterful plan. Um, it's interesting seeing the way it kind of plays out here in the explanation versus the 99 version of the manga, which kind of logistically plan it out. Like, the plan is the same, but the way they explain it is different. Mm-hmm. For sure. Um, yeah. And then afterwards, Machi tells Hisoka that the Phantom Troop members are going to be gathering at York, New City, on August 30th at noon. Um, gathering of the Juggalos? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Down with the he's, clown. <laughs> he's the only clown, though. Spoilers, he's the only clown. Awkward. Imagine you go to the guy in the juggler, you're the only one that dressed up in clown outfits. Oh, gosh. <laughs> real. We, no, we're supposed to show up normal today. <laughs> oh. D- did I ever tell you about when I saw two juggalos at ASU and they were kind of, like, really rude to me? Oh. It happens. Sorry. Yeah, like, I was walking down there, I was like, hey, how's it going? I was like, oh, yeah, what are you dressed for? It's like, getting the juggalos, dude, and, like, fucking walked away. I was like, okay. Like is every are they supposed is that like their stick is that they're just assholes? Um, no, I mean I they can be very obnoxious for sure, but I think they try to at least be like a solid community in and of themselves. Yeah. But 
in terms of their work outside of it, I think that varies heavily because that's not a core tenant, but some of them are very nice to other people and some of them are like yeah. kind of jerks. Yeah, I, I remember I was looking at the, I don't know, like the, the two, the St. Clown Posse guys have been doing kind of good. Like they had that whole like fuck the Southern, was it fuck the Confederate flag campaign? Oh, yeah. And apparently one of them, his daughter is a furry and he like went out and get, got his own fursuit so he can spend time with his daughter, which I thought was kind of Yeah, going to really cons cool. together. It's real wholesome. Yeah. Very, very wholesome. <laughs> yeah, but nothing against them, but you know, the fans, you guys got to straighten yourselves out a bit, please. Please don't yeah, be rude to me. There's like at issue a pretty high diversity amongst like what they're going for because I think the insane clown posse themselves have sort of changed over time, so it's kind of like who's in what wave. Mm-hmm. Gotcha. You should probably censor the school, by the way, Joe. When I said ASU, uh, we've talked about right ASU before. Oh, fair enough. I, I can censor if you want, but like my policy has just generally been like, hey, if we mention Arizona, but like large locations, fuck it. Mm-hmm. Okay, yeah, that's fine. You'll censor that. <laughs> yeah. Just censor me asking for the censor. <laughs> okay. Uh, anyway, so we cut to Kilowa. He enters Gon's room, and he basically tells him about Hisoka's match against Castro. Um, and he tells him that they gotta learn all they can about Ned. Because he was like, yeah, the fight was kind of boring. And then he's like, yeah, but we gotta learn all this shit, okay? So... <laughs> Then we cut back to a steamy shower scene with Hisoka. And he comes out and he's like wiping his hair dry. And then he, there's like, he looks in the mirror and he's like, oh, I forgot to take this off. And he removes a spider tattoo via textured surprise that was on his back. Dun dun dun, yeah. what does that mean? Ooh. He's Ooh. playing both sides. <laughs> Is that a fucking always sunny reference? <laughs> I actually don't know if it is. I I, I might have heard it from there, but you know, just pl- I guess double agent sort of thing is I guess more accurate for yeah. non Sunny fans. He's yeah. uh, he's very slippery. Yeah, I'm just curious. Why does he even need to do that? Is it like they do a back check? It's like, all right, Hizoka, we got to do a back check on you. They do well. One, he wears a bear midriff all the time, so there's a t- chance someone would see the area. And two, they all have to have tattoos if they're like legitimate members. I got, I got you. I meant like. Like, because I never see it during, like, any other time. Like, he, I guess it, it's covered well. But, like, I don't know. Maybe, like, he has friends coming over. It's like putting on, a, on like, a, a special shirt. He just sticks the tattoo on his back. So, it's, hey, how's it going? It's going to be, like, Yakuza style where it's just like, oh, yeah, you're supposed to see each other in this condition every once in a while. And, like, you got to have, like, the tats there to prove that, like, you're part of the group. I got you. I mean, he was with the doctor, so maybe he was worried that she'd ask... Him to take off his shirt for some reason. Which yeah. I guess kind of makes sense. Mm-hmm. You don't want to do re- arm reattachment without any... And getting all that blood all over your clothes. Not good. Mm-hmm. Mm-mm. Hi, um, so what was different with the manga? Um, in the manga, he is still chewing on his, his arm for some reason. <laughs> I don't know why. It looks That's like not he how you have it written here. Yeah, what does it say in the notes? Oh, oh, so he's still eating that arm like groceries. Sorry about that. <laughs> but yeah, I don't know why he's eating that arm like groceries. It's weird. Uh, the cool bonus panel um, has had a, there's a cool bonus panel in there that celebrates the fiftieth episode, uh, the fiftieth issue. I thought the way that it was worded, it said fiftieth episode. I was like, what are you talking about? Maybe it's the show, but I guess Joe and I figured I was just the the con- the issue right of the chapter of the manga. 
Yeah, because if you look at publication dates, the 50th episode wouldn't be out for another year from the publication date of the Volume 6 Tunkoban. Yeah. And uh, there's a couple of things, like uh, like um, when it doesn't show the exact room Hizoka's getting his arm fixed in, or if it's really a room at all. So it could be literally right outside the arena, or in a, spe- a, a different area. And um, you don't, it shows the text bubbles of him explaining the bungee gum technique. Uh, but it doesn't really show if it's her asking it or is just the narrator saying that. Mm. And then uh, there's less of a shower scene, thank God. And that's really about it. Like I said, these issues, these issues have been really faithful, or the episode have been really faithful to the manga. There isn't really many differences, at least, that I've ran into. Oh, you're about to hear something super not faithful. So. All right, let's, <laughs> let's, let's, ready. Hear, let's, let's hear it, Joe. So in 1999, uh, this episode starts with an incredibly fast recap of the rest of the match in five seconds, not explaining anything. You just see cards going to a dude, him getting punched in the face, and like with the flying arm, and you're like, what the fuck is going on? Wow. And I didn't skip any episodes. They just did this. And I have a feeling it was probably to like censor some of it, because they're like, well, we can't fucking show all this shit happening. Um, so it shows, so what's interesting is while they do censor stuff, mostly they very briefly show the full extent of Hisoka's manga accurate injuries in like, uh, in, in Machi's eye as she does the surgery. Like basically she pulls up the needle and like for the brief second, she's charging her Nen. It shows Hisoka's arm stump completely bare, like, and like muscles everywhere, just like fucked up. Like in her in her like eye reflection, and then cuts to something else very fast. Hashtag muscle stumps. Yeah, muscle stumps. <laughs> the Soka story. Um, yeah, so they do a they do a huge uh, reorder thing that skips uh, a lot of weird stuff. Like so, not not weird stuff. They do some weird skipping. They skip Machi's message for now. Jump right to the lesson on Gyo, which is a eye technique they learn in the next episode in 2011. And then they keep going, skip to Hisoka, like, skip to Hisoka taking a shower, skip a ton of stuff, including, like, side plots that are manga accurate, and then just just straight up get to, like, they, they then get to the part where Machi says anything. Like, they just skip a ton of stuff for, like, no reason. What? I... So wow. I think it's because they were probably getting near the end of their ability to make this. And they're like, fuck, oh. we need to get to Gon versus Hisoka now. So they right. skip a ton of shit. Do not explain it. And I, I wouldn't be surprised if the understanding at the time was like, oh, the people who watch this read the manga, you know, because it was like almost concurrent. So they're like, this is just like the cool bonus. You get to see an animated version of the manga as opposed to being a standalone which I know yeah. that there have been anime that have acted on that attitude before, and I'm wondering if this is one of them. My thing is I thought they changed it up a bit because, you know, they maybe thought that same reason. It's like, oh, well, they're, why don't we show them a little bit something different than straight what the manga's, manga's doing? There's some of that, too. I wonder if they're like, oh, we'll do our own stuff, and then after a while they're like, this is unsustainable. Let's get back to the plot. I got you. They should have added that boat scene in, though. Yeah, there's a lot of... Interesting choices. Um, so they then have the shower scene, and Hisoka talks to Machi again, and Hisoka puts Machi in... You guys know Kabe Don? Nope. Th- the thing where you corner someone and then put your arm over their head, oh, and then yeah. you're real creepy to them? Yeah, like the, the anime trope where it's like, they say something really creepy up close. Hisoka puts <laughs> Machi in that, 
And then, like, Machi mentions uh, Dancho, a.k.a. the head of the Phantom Troop. And then Hisoka goes from being horny to just suddenly being battle horny. He's just like, wait, did you say Krollo's going to be there? Where is he? Is there really a difference between regular horny and battle horny with Hisoka? Yeah, he goes from like, ooh, hot woman in front of me that I'm like very clearly creeping on to like, (laughs) what did you say about our leader? I'm sorry, I do not want to betray him. He wants to wrestle wrestle him, basically. <laughs> hmm. oh, gosh. I can imagine. There's a lot of fangirls out there that probably were wanting to be in Machi's position, to be to be honest. so Oh, for sure. Yeah. For sure. Hey, Joe, that should be a, ch- a parody of uh, of JoJo. Instead of Battle Tense, battle it's horny. Battle Horny. Yeah. <laughs> oh, okay. I just had to Google what Kavidani was, and it's basically the wall slam, <laughs> right? Yeah, it's the wall slam. <laughs> and you peer over him? Okay. That makes sense. Oh, it's creepy. Yeah. I'm really worried where 99 is going with this. So, like, a couple weeks ago, I did a calculation based on, like, hey, how many chapters of manga translated to how many episodes of show for 99, 2011. And one of the few points where 99 is faster than 2011 was this saga. And I was just like, oh, I wonder why. Like, maybe they do things efficiently. Turns out, no, they don't. They actually just cut shit out, and that's how they do it, to be quote-unquote efficient. Was that Dr. Ichigaki calculations? Yeah, it was it was some Doctor Ichigaki shit. I flipped the cal- I I flipped it over and it said like boobies or whatever. Oh, uh, fair <laughs> enough. Yes. Um, but yeah, you guys kind of hype with the direction of the series. Also, like, what do you think is going on with like the Phantom Troop? Like, someone's gonna die. All I know. The fact that Hisoka's like a fake member or something like that. Yeah, it's interesting. It's mm-hmm. like uh, it's like he doesn't have a side. He just likes beating people up just because it's fun. Yeah. yeah, that's how I feel, too. It's like he's almost doing it because he can. Um, And if it is kind of like part of his quest to like find powerful people to fight, like it makes sense he would join the Phantom Troop. Um, mm-hmm. Just because by that nature, the mysterious murderous assassins will probably run into equally powerful murderous people. Why not? Um. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, I. Yeah. I think I like the out- the episode more in retrospect. Now I thought about it, but I think I mentioned before we started recording while watching it, it was kind of rough for me to get get through, just because I think what I really liked the characters and um Ma- in like Machi's like personality, but. To have to go through her explaining exactly what happened in the fight just felt very tedious for me. And I think that's the one thing that I noticed a lot with the show. There's just a lot of info dumping that, at least with a lot of like things that are currently going on in my life, where I'm having to learn a lot of different things, having an additional lecture component in my entertainment media has been a little it's been kind of I'm getting a little bit um burnt out so I didn't really appreciate that part of the episode but I did like at least the different character interactions between um Machi and Hisoka just to see like how what their relationship could be like and the intrigue behind the um Oh my god, their names hate me like the spiders and mm-hmm. 
seeing like Hilua and gone again and that they have and now like even more motivated to become better Nen users. So I did a pre like that too about the episode. I don't know. Yeah. I mean, what, oh, I mean, what do you guys think? <laughs> I've recently, I mean, so I think I may have said too much regarding the like, oh yeah, he, he may be revealing too much of like what he intends to do, but like it is very clear that he's not a real member and that he is like kind of playing them, but it's a question of like how. Mm-hmm. And I've been, I've recently been watching Naruto with my girlfriend and um, I did not watch through Naruto back in the day because like I, I would see episodes and I'd be like, okay, I think there's cool stuff about this world, but I don't really like the general way it handles things and I, I think mm-hmm. I maintain that position but I think there's really cool aspects to it but the reason mm-hmm. I bring it up is we just got to Shippuden and like we're just seeing a lot about Akatsuki and like Akatsuki Akatsuki let's be real is the phantom troop for Naruto like in a bunch of ways um and so it's interesting seeing the differential position that Orochimaru had in Akatsuki versus Hisoka in the phantom troop because they're both not really aligned with the goals and but like it's interesting how different those are like in the way that they're not aligned because Orochimaru was there just to amass power for himself and then leave while like Hisoka's there trying to like get close to one single person and it's like oh, yeah it's really interesting the different ways that the two wild cards sort of play into the overall you know world dominating villain group dynamic So I'm hyped to see how, like, did, I forget, Hannah and Sarah, did you guys watch much Naruto? Uh, I watched, I think I pretty much watched everything up to Shippuden, and then here, like, I would catch, like, random episodes of Shippuden. Admittedly, I probably read more fan fiction of Naruto than I actually watched nice. episodes of Naruto, Believe so. <laughs> I did not watch it <laughs> or read yeah. it. <laughs> a lot of the times, if I caught up with any knowledge about Naruto after the time, after Shibuden, it's because I needed to find context to the stuff I was reading in fan fiction. <laughs> so. <laughs> That's awesome. Uh, well, just so then some background stuff. Akatsuki is effectively like, what if Avatar's Order of the White Lotus was was bad? Oh. Oh, I see. Okay. Now that makes sense. Essentially trying to keep the order, but for different reasons. For um, di- They both want peace. And... <laughs> A lot of the people in Akatsuki want peace, but, like, the question is whether the peace they want is good. Mm. Yeah. So, it's interesting. Um, but, yeah, it's it will be very curiously different from the Phantom Troop. With, I mean, they're a bunch of... They're literally thieves. That's, like, what they do. They don't have, like, a bigger purpose than that. So, it's kind of interesting how different that is because, you know, Akatsuki, like, huge, like, ethical goals like ethical in quotes the question of how they get there is you know a question of like whether you believe in this and then like the fandom troop is like no we're just completely amoral we just want to steal shit fuck it (laughs) yeah so i'll be curious to see your thoughts on villain groups Mm -hmm. and how they contrast as we go on yeah i'm curious yeah no i think that'll be really cool I'm, i'm excited for that yeah, but um, I was going to say, do you guys have any more thoughts on the uh, episode? Patrick, you've been quiet for a, a decent amount. 
Um, there's really not much to say. I thought it was, it was really good. Um, I really enjoyed, really enjoyed a lot of it. I think, uh, I, I don't know, it's, it's just a lot really to take in, I guess. Mm, but I meant you know. to actually mention, yeah, the numerization and the research and like the lessons part is a big make or break thing about this show and might influence the pace at which we take this just because a lot of people who burn out on the show and manga tend to not like how much more numeric and tactics focused it gets compared to Yu Hakusho where it was much more about character dynamics rather than um, battle tactics and I think that's like a major Mm -hmm. distinction between the two yeah, but I guess. I, oh, sorry. Mm-hmm. I, I oh, used no, to see my ahead, thoughts. Sure. Just really give my thoughts on it. I, you know, I just really enjoyed this episode. I really love the sort of the 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 bungee gum introduction, and I, I know it goes into it more in the next episode. But this is a really cool explanation how a lot of it works, and just the I guess the cool his cool abilities, which I'm looking forward to. Yeah, I think one of the things that I've been thinking a lot about this series that I think what stopped me from liking it versus loving it is just how the information is presented and this could be tied with whatever preferences you have in storytelling in general it's that classic argument showing versus telling and i think with hunter hunter it's been more telling than showing and i think it's a preference about what you like um and i've always been more of like a prefer to be shown in learn from that versus being told exactly what's happening through um at least like through dialogue so Mm -hmm. i think that i and i looked online i think that's a like a very it seems like that's a very common um issue that a lot of people have with hunter hunter it's depending on if they like the explanations versus not because some people really love exposition and love learning but some people like i know for me sometimes it just becomes like information overload and it's something where i think i could see it and understand it versus being told it and being told it kind of takes away from the experience yeah, I definitely think that's valid. Um, I'm someone who does really like explanation um, because I'm someone who likes thinking about in terms of systems. But I, I get where you're coming from. And I do think that there's like sort of a change as the series goes on because um, I, I do think that part of it is that Togashi was developing his sort of like, you know, fucking PhD thesis on like what it is to make a battle system. So some of the early arcs are explaining it in possibly too much depth. But later arcs, focus less on it they allow you to sort of unfocus your eyes and think more about character dynamics so i think you'll probably appreciate that as it goes on but uh are you guys familiar with the philosopher uh emmanuel kant okay so do you know the title of his first book because it's like the most pretentious thing ever made Ooh, i don't remember it's I, I don't remember if it's first it's his first book but it's one of his earlier books it's on the groundwork of the metaphysics of morals. So he writes an entire book explaining like, okay, so here are my assumptions before he writes all his other books. <laughs> and I feel like these, this and the next saga of Hunter Hunter are very much like, hey, on the groundworks of the metaphysics of Nen. And then later sagas are much more like free of explanation. And like, it's just like, no, you get it. You've been with us this whole ride. So it's a question of whether or not you're willing to slog through that explanation heavy part. 
And like, I don't mind either way, but I do recognize that there are people such as yourselves, uh, such as Sarah, at least who that might not be as enjoyable. So like, it, we'll see how this kind of goes as we go through. Yeah, no, I'm I'm here for the ride. If I can get through Zen and the art of motorcycle maintenance, I can get through the the more narrative explanation expositions of Hunter Hunter because <laughs> in the end it really does help. Um, I think it's just something different from what I've been from the other media that I've been consuming. Where if there are power systems, it's more like the accidental discovery by the characters and more like a figuring it out on the fly and then developing a technique from there versus learning a set power system that has all this structure and there's someone new coming into this and needs to be taught in a more structured way if that makes sense yeah actually you bring up a good point that i didn't really realize sarah is that it kind of feels like that we're sort of learning along with the main characters like it feels like that we're developing our own Nen system because they haven't heard of this either. So we're learning all this along with Gon and uh, Killua. Right. So I think it's, it's, it's kind of an interesting concept. Yeah, I think it's something where it's like learning versus discovery. And mm-hmm. then some other, some, some animes and shows have focused more on the discovery aspect, while I think with Hunter x Hunter, it's more on the learning I don't know if that makes any sense. <laughs> no, I, I, I see what you're saying, like sort of like structured teaching principles rather than like kind of finding them out by virtue of an experience in the show. Like if I were to yeah. analogize it to like Gundam or something, there's this thing called new typeness, which is effectively like psychic emotional powers. It's like what if the force was emotional only and not physical? Um, And the principles that people have about it now are only there by virtue of analyzing the events of the show they're never really spelled out because people during the time of the show do not understand it mm-hmm. and so i think hunter is the opposite where it's like no these are well understood and i am literally like a master of this and like studied for years and now i have to try to distill these principles to you and like those are two radically different approaches to explaining otherworldly like fictional power systems yeah for sure um, and yeah, I tend to be a first principles person, both in real life study and in, in fiction, but I understand the value of going the top down approach as well. Um, and so it will be curious to see how that again, swings and changes in dynamic as it goes across the series. Yeah, for sure. I'm really excited to see what the show has to offer. Um, I know that we probably should talk about our research topic for this episode sounds good hey lassie what are you doing here timmy's in a well sequel cast 2 and friends is a podcast looking at movies in a franchise one film at a time like harry potter hellraiser and the hobbit and sometimes the hosts talk about video games and tv as well and now it's part of the greenlit podcast network Oh, Lassie, we don't need to rescue Timmy. He likes the well well enough, I guess. Darth Vader is Luke's father. Lassie, I told you to lay off the spoilers. Ellen, in 15 seconds, what is Nice Game Club? It's our game dev podcast. Steven, help! Game mechanics, accessibility, art and animation, level design, prototyping. Everything that goes into making video games. How's that, Mark? Nice. Listen to Nice Games Club wherever you get your podcasts or at nicegames.club. 
Megan, just some background. Uh, Megan and I kind of collaborated on this. She did most of the research. I passed her some initial ideas. Um, so we're currently in Heaven's Arena, which, as you can probably tell, is kind of based on real-life prize fighting to a degree. Uh, so in previous Togashi series, hey, for anyone who's joined us after Yu Show, a.k.a. didn't go through our whole thing covering the Dark Tournament, the Gankai Tournament, and uh, the Demon World Tournament, Togashi really likes uh, tournaments and, I guess, like combat sports. Like, hell, Yusuke, the main character of uh, Yu Show was tricked into going to the Genkai tournament by the idea that he would get tickets for, like, a early Japanese MMA show. So there's a lot going on here with regards to Togashi's inspiration from that. Um, I will say, though, that the tournaments that they existed in the in Yu show were more based on understandings of how combat sports existed to that point and also previous anime tropes. And the world of Heaven's Arena is pretty different. Uh, like, did you guys... Do you guys know much about, like, uh, modern prize fighting, like, the way contracts and stuff are negotiated and, like, timelines and all that? Nothing beyond uh, the typical anime where they always mess, uh, screw them over and have them try to try to uh, throw the fight or, like, a dramatic movie. That's about it. Nice. Are you talking about, like, Hajime no Ippo or something? Uh, yeah. Oh, no. Um, uh, like, Megalobox, Hajime no Ippo, and just, like, some of those movies where it's like, uh, like oh, throw the fight and to make money or whatever. Oh, nice. like what happened in Daredevil. Spoiler. Yeah, I was, that, that, I was about to bring that up too. Yeah, in Daredevil. Nice. Um, yeah, so I'd say that like Heaven's Arena is halfway between the new modern reality of like what combat sports are like and the old reality of like tournaments like mm-hmm. that you saw in Yu Show and Dragon Ball. Um, and those both have their place because like those old tournaments are based on like old martial arts uh, tournaments which are not how things are done anymore where like all the matches happened in one night and like you'd go into your second match completely fucked up from the first match unless you finish your first opponent really fast and uh because of the injection of money into combat sports things kind of changed and now like you have a match on a specific day and you're given months between to like rest and heal up uh so it's it's kind of a quantum shift but we're going to be talking a little bit about the japanese mma scene and how it probably in- influenced if not inspired togashi so, do you guys know much about MMA, or? I just know Joe Rogan. That's about it. Hey, have you ever tried watching MMA on uh, DMT? Yeah, um, I ended up eating my own skin, but that's another story. <laughs> oh my god, are you a pickup artist? Uh, no, I'm just a, I'm just a crazy clown. <laughs> I'm just a clown, and life is a nightmare. I don't know um, too much about MMA, but I watched a couple matches before, but really had no context about what was going on oh i did watch the matches like where they where they but it was like the leg break compilations where like they kick oh them god out. yeah why would you do that uh <laughs> you ever hear the meme that hear the the uh the meme this the sponge no basically it's a it's a meme where you ever hear the, you remember sponge was like all right universe i'm gonna teach you how to do the sponge it's that song, and then as soon as it kicks in, somebody's legs breaks in a horrible way. Jesus Christ. Yeah, oh, it's I've not seen up. this. I wish I had never up. asked. Yeah. Okay. But anyways, to, just that and the Joe Rogan thing. Okay, so I'm going to give a very brief history of MMA in Japan. Um, I will note that 
even with the things that I talk about, there are previous things that predate all of the things I'm talking about, but these are the ones that are probably most important to the current MMA timeline and what would have been shown to Togashi in the late 80s and early 90s that he would have been aware of. Keep in mind, uh, like, this part of Hunter Hunter didn't start to, like, 99, and so anything up until 99 is kind of fair game for influence. Uh, so... Do you guys know that Muhammad Ali fought an MMA match in 1976? Uh, no, but I'm interested to hear. Um, it may or may not have been real. It probably wasn't, and probably was just a publicity stunt between him and the biggest pro wrestler in Japan at the time, Antonio Inoki, uh, where they both got together and had like a mixed rules match, but then both proceeded to do bullshit for like an hour. So basically, Antonio Inoki second biggest most influential pro wrestler in japanese history i say second biggest because there's one guy who basically popularized it in japan so this guy is the the one who showed up after him that guy died in a horrific way where he was like stabbed with like a urine soaked knife and then like died of infection and you call me Um, weird for looking up memes that make people breaking their legs i didn't look up this like i didn't look up like oh man show me pictures of this dog uh (laughs) but so this match occurred in 1976 uh, at the sold-out Nippon Budokan, which is, like, you know, a big arena. And uh, it was called the War of the Worlds. Muhammad Ali and Antonio Inoki basically just... Uh... So, you know, Muhammad Ali, if you don't know, famous boxer. Like, probably the most famous boxer of all time. Inoki did catch wrestling, which is a pro wrestling style from the West that came to Japan by virtue of a lot of, like, legitimate uh, German and British uh, catch wrestlers came to Japan to train people because Japan was looking for trainers. And so catch wrestling had real had a real background, like in addition to, you know, traditional pinning style wrestling, it was also about submissions. Uh, but it, Inoki had tra- trained in that and karate. And so I'm going to read Wikipedia because Megan's citing it right here. Quote, unquote, the fight itself, which was fought under special rules, is seen as a precursor to modern mixed martial arts. The majority of fight, the fight saw Inoki on his back kicking Ali's legs 107 times uninhibited by the referee due to the particular rule negotiated shortly before the fight, which allowed him to do so without being disqualified. And the result of the fight, a draw, has long been debated by the press and fans. Mm. Huh. Yeah, there's, like, a lot of people are like, oh, this match was fake. You know, they just did this just to fucking make a, a buck, which is entirely probable, honestly. But there's also a significant group of people who are like, yeah, the injuries Muhammad Ali sustained are real because he wasn't prepared to fight this fight where they changed the fucking rules in front of him. And he may have lost some power in the leg that was kicked a hundred and fucking seven times directly in the knee. Uh, Jesus Christ. Yeah, and so, like, the consequences of this fight may have been real, which is really weird. He should have worked on his leg game instead of just his, his arms. Well, to be fair, the rules before that were like, yeah, if you're on your fucking back on the ground, you have to get up. So he probably wasn't ready to just be kicked for like an hour. I mean, that's pretty much life in a nutshell. Yeah, I guess. I'm also not ready to get kicked for an hour. So in case you were thinking about doing that. Yeah, I wasn't, but I'm glad you, I'm glad that you, you, you let me know though. So new Patreon tier, bro. Yeah. Wait. So who's going to be doing the kicking, me or you? And You're doing the kicking. Okay. I was going to say, I thought for a second I thought you meant the fans got to kick us, and I was like, Ooh. Oh, no, that uh. is a horrible mistake. <laughs> it's like, beat up Patrick for $1,000. Lol. Okay, so now to sort of set this up, 
Um, you know, so that was like the first like big highly publicized MMA match in Japanese history. Uh, so around this time, there were you guys know that pro wrestling is very big in Japan and kind of operates differently than it does in the U.S., right? Mm-hmm. Elaborate. Sure, yeah. So until MMA became a thing, pro wrestling in Japan had to pretend to be a real sport. So they didn't do the freak shit that like happens in the U.S. Like they didn't do chairs. They didn't do like basically the the refs were like seen as competent and like were always like calling the correct calls. Like it was basically like, hey, we're like really going to act this. We're going to LARP wrestling. Awesome. Um, and because of that, a lot of the guys trained actual submission wrestling. Like they did not like they didn't train like just like fake shit, like doing flips and stuff that was there as well. But it was on top of like knowing how to really wrestle, really wrestle. And like, like in the West, a lot of the pro wrestlers were also like actual accomplished amateur wrestlers. So in 1986, uh, Satoru Suyama, AKA tiger mask. I think he may have been the third tiger mask, tiger mask being like a really famous Japanese pro wrestler. That's so famous. that in the sixties, there's an anime based on him. Isn't that Um, the guy that's based off a King? No, King is like based King's off based him. Of, oh, that's what I meant, sorry. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So King's based off him, King from Tekken. Um, and this guy was, like, a real fighter, so he started the first Japanese MMA league in 1986, which therefore predates the UFC by seven years. Keep in mind, I'm not saying this is the first MMA league in the world. There are previous ones, but, like, they weren't big, and this is, like, one of the first big ones with a large sanctioning body. Um, so, really cool place, uh, but around the same time... Have you guys ever heard of K1? No. So K1's a large kickboxing organization that started as Sado Kaikan Karate, which was a break off mm-hmm. from Kyokushin, and broke off and formed K1 in 1993. So uh, this was around the same time. Like Shuto was like big, but like it was very much an indie thing where basically dudes who did MMA in their spare time would get together and beat the shit out of each other on weekends in the late 80s. Um, but like money started coming into it because of K1. Oh, that's interesting. <laughs> also, at the same time, a large pro wrestling promotion called Pancrase started. That was like, oh, yeah, you know how we normally like fake these fights? Uh, we're just going to really do them now. And so Pancrase basically took pro wrestling rules to a goofy degree and like applied them to real MMA in 1993. And keep in mind, this was a couple of months before the UFC came in. So a bunch of dudes got together, fucking had tag team matches of real fighting. <laughs> Oh my god. If you, yeah, if you got to the ropes, you could tag your friend in and shit like that. And, like, so they also didn't allow punches to the face because that's not allowed in pro wrestling either. You had to palm slap people. So people would get really good at doing palm strikes and knocking people out. <laughs> so everyone. Oh my god. I guess they didn't really care about the Masato health insurance plans because that's a risky business. Yes, yes it is. Well, keep in mind, these guys were doing this, like, for fake fighting in, like... Like, fake pro wrestling still really fucking destroys your body. So these guys were already doing that. So these guys were just like, fuck it, let's just really fight. We want to show how tough we are. And so two guys, Masakatsu Funaki and Minoru Suzuki, started Pankrace, which is based on the ancient Greek... Oh, speaking of ancient forms of MMA, there was an ancient Greek sport called pankration, which means all powers or all abilities, which was effectively Greek MMA in, like, 400 BC. It, like, so Greeks had wrestling. They had boxing called pygmation, 
But they also had a sport where it's like, yeah, you can do both of those and break people's arms. We'll call it Pankration. Pancreas Destroyer. Yeah, Pancreas <laughs> is shorter and probably eliminates some of the problems with pronunciation in Japanese. So they started attracting people from all over the world, including like famous kickboxer Bas Rudin, Sebastian Rudin from uh, the Netherlands, who came over and he, when he first came over, he lost to Funaki. And basically he was there to like show like, oh yeah, our style is so powerful. But they befriended the guy and he started training with them and he like rose in the ranks and then eventually beat his two mentors and became the champion. So like they had like some international flavor very early in the MMA game. Um, like also like a big thing about early Japanese MMA was because people didn't know really what was going on. The people who got it were so much better than the people who didn't just because there was such like an intellectual difference in the ways people approach fighting, which is why I think, you know, there's some of that in like the way the Nen fights are done is just like people were bringing in entire technical systems that other people had never trained in their life. And like people had to adjust to very fast. So you could say that the initiation here was getting your like leg fucking broken in a leg lock. Awesome. Yeah. So in 1993, you, the first UFC happened. Um, basically, this was a way of promoting the Gracie family from Brazil. Uh, the Gracies are like the royalty of Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. They invented Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu based on like a style of Judo they learned from a Japanese man who moved to Brazil in like the 1920s or 30s. Uh, that in Brazil, he has this really cool title, Conde Coma, which literally just means Count Combat. <laughs> but his, like, real Japanese name was, like, way lamer. I don't even remember what it is, but he's, like, this mythical figure in Brazilian history of, like, ah, and then Count Combat came from, quote-unquote, the Orient. And it's just like, ah, this is weird. I want to break your legs. Basically. <laughs> but he's just this Japanese dude with a mustache. Um... So they promoted their style in the U.S. and it got really big there and the U.S. started getting really big in MMA. And so uh, effectively the clash was eventually going to happen where the guy who won UFC 1, Hoist Gracie, was like one of the Gracie members, but he was not considered the best uh, Gracie member at the time. His older brother Hickson Gracie was. Uh, yes, his name is spelled with an R, but is pronounced H because Portuguese in Brazil is weird. Uh, but he started wrecking shop in tournaments. So Shuto, that organization I mentioned earlier, formed by Satoru Suyama, started having Vale Tudo tournaments. Vale Tudo being the uh, Brazilian Portuguese word for MMA. It means bring everything. Um, and so they had a big Vale Tudo tournament nationally in Japan in 1994, which may or may not have actually inspired King of Fighters 94. I don't know. It'd be very curious to see that because it is the first tournament of its sort. Um, but Hicks and Gracie cleaned up the tournament, destroyed everyone. And then in 1995, one of the Shuto champions decided to come over to the Valetudo organization and, like, basically test his medal. This guy was, like, completely dominant in uh, Japan's Shuto. His name's Yuki Nakai. He was a lightweight, but he came into a no-weight-bounds uh, no tournament, and it was one where you had to fight all in one night. And he, like he got his eye gouged and like he was like in these crazy fights against guys who were like 240 pounds and he beat the first two opponents he had and then in a tournament match he fought Hickson Gracie and lost he then so you know how he's mentioned that he got his eye gouged mm -hmm. the dude went on to train with Hickson because like he you know like wanted to become like one of the greatest fighters in the world and like train the next generation of Japanese fighters 
he went blind in the eye that he got gouged in and never told anyone for like 20 years so that MMA wouldn't be banned. Oh. Wow. Yeah, Shit. so people like really thank him. Yeah, he's effectively hyper respected in Japan. Like it's just this crazy fucking dude who is like in no holds barred fighting tournaments fighting guys who like outweighed him by literally 100 pounds back then. Going blind for the sport he loved. Which you can definitely argue that's fucked up, but like it's the stuff that like me growing up and being into martial arts, I thought was the coolest shit on the planet. Mm-hmm. Hey, you know what? Sometimes you got to do what you got to do for your uh, your your passion. That's true. You yeah. got to do what you got to do. <laughs> even if even if it just turns into the worst shit ever. But basically, this all brings us back to the point I actually want to get to of the late '90s in Japanese MMA, where a large organization called Pride FC started in 1997. And uh, it will be the place where the guy who I think was maybe some of the inspiration for some of the way that Heaven's Arena works started. His name is Kazushi Sakuraba. He's one of my favorite MMA fighters of all time. He's like the first Japanese wrestler to figure out how to defeat Brazilian jiu-jitsu fighters. And in the 2000s, he would go on to beat the Gracies um, in like some incredibly highly publicized matches attended by like tens of thousands of people like on New Year's Eve in Japan, aka like the biggest entertainment day. So it's effectively the Super Bowl of martial arts. But in the 90s, he was just kind of getting his start. He was at uh, he started at Pride 2 in 1998 and beat a guy who had been a veteran of UFC. He then showed up in 90, uh, at Pride 3 in 1998 and beat Carlos Newton, who was a former UFC champion. And then right before Heaven's Arena started, he was, uh, he was having matches against like a Brazilian jiu-jitsu fighter named Alan Goez. Uh, before, after Heaven's Arena, he would then go on to beat the Gracies. The reason that I bring him up and think that he's incredibly important is because at the time, he was considered, quote-unquote, the smartest fighter alive. He was, like, the tactician. He was the guy who was doing things, like... He was, like, effectively faking people out about, like, why he would keep them in a certain position. It had nothing to do with actually wanting to attack them. It had to do with building lactic acid up in their legs so that, like, later he could just, like, take them down using the same leg that he had been building lactic acid in and just, like, crazy shit like that. And, like, he was all about, like, mind games and, like, just, like, strategy at a level that no one had seen up to that point. And so I think if we're going to look for someone who was into crazy in-ring strategies that would have to be explained by analysts after the fact, this is the guy. Um, I can say that this guy was popular enough that he would have been known by anyone watching Japanese MMA at the time. And while I cannot guarantee that Tagashi was watching Japanese MMA religiously, I can say that he's at least watched it a couple times if he was fucking aware of Shuto in, like, 1990. Because he mentions Kakutogi in the early parts of Yu Hakusho, which were, like, way before it had gotten big. So he had to have been connected to underground fighting in some way. Maybe he saw some matches and stuff. So this, Maybe this he stuff would have been in fighting. his milieu. Sorry? Maybe he did the underground fighting. <laughs> Looking at Togashi, I'm going to say he didn't. <laughs> Never know. Yeah, maybe he's one of those like crazy ripped dudes under the under the shirt. Yeah, but uh, I would say if you guys are interested, just know that in the late '90s, Japan was going through an incredible MMA boom. It was in the capital, like it was in Tokyo, so like everyone saw this stuff, like saw analysis of it. Like there was a very international flavor. I don't think we can point to direct influences, but I will say that the awakening of this consciousness, this greater idea of like meta strategies 
that didn't exist in Japanese MMA to that point was there right then and like was right then and there and could have made a huge influence on the way that like Heaven's Arena type battles took place. And that's my bit. Yeah. But uh, yeah, that's kind of like what I got for for the research and the like. So uh, yeah, I'm curious to see like what you guys think is going to like kind of come up with like the rest of this saga. I think it's in an interesting place. I'm sad to find out that 99 just fucking skips a ton of it, but I'm curious to see where things go. Um, I'm curious to see um, what with Kurapika, like how he's gonna learn about like all this stuff, like Ned and everything. Because obviously, like, is this like a? I guess I'm assuming everyone who's like more of a experienced fighter knows about it, except for our main four guys. So um, I don't know. I'm curious to see like. Who his master is, how he's going to train him and make him know about it. Because, like, I feel it's, like, one thing, like, in a fighting setting, like the Heaven's Arena, to kind of learn about this fighting technique. But it's another when it's, like, um, when in learning the ran- in the field, you know? So uh, Yeah, I was going to say the fact that Kurapika is effectively learning karate on the streets. Yeah, basically. <laughs> Who would have thought? <laughs> You'd think it'd be the opposite, <laughs> honestly. <laughs> so, yeah. I'm curious to see what happens with that. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's what I've got for, for this episode. I'm really excited to see how you guys uh, like the upcoming parts. But, um, yeah, I, I don't know. We'll, we're, after this, going to be talking a little bit about pace and how we might kind of change it, given how more analytic some of these fights get. Uh, so... Keep your ears peeled for uh, some news regarding that, but we'll see. Awesome. So, um, yeah. Thank you guys so much for watching, for listening to The Spirit Hunters. Please hit us up with questions or cuss or just to chat at our Facebook at Spirit Hunter Pod and our Twitter at Spirit Hunter Pod. If you enjoy the show and want to find a way to introduce it to other people, give us a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. The algorithm determines our ability to be discovered, and your review could put us over the edge. Also, heads up, today's intro music was made by Studio Megane. Please check them out at youtube.com slash user slash studio Megane. Yeah. I think I think it might be slightly different than that, but yeah, just like just look them up on YouTube and you'll find them. Thank you guys.
Coco 